Well, I do want to uh, let you know that um, this year, for maybe the first time, we've been doing Lakeview Church here for probably close to 20 years, and this may be the first and only year that we're not like cutting the sermon series to do a designated uh, Christmas series. I love Christmas series. I love taking that time out. Um, but we're not going to do that this year because I have this goal that I have in mind to finish Mark um, on Easter. And so I got to keep on going, uh, pushing forward. Um, but I think there's going to be some tie-ins that will, um, that will help with that. However, I'll use that as an opportunity to invite you to our Christmas Eve service. Um, it is at 5 o'clock on Christmas Eve. It is one hour to the dot. Um, it, you, you are out the door by 6 o'clock. And it has been a great way to just kind of wrap that into your Christmas um, festivities, uh, getting together, putting the focus on Christ as we go into that time. Um, and so, uh, so we're going to do that here uh, as we've done that every year. Um, and so with, um, with, with Easter in mind, we are going to just press on in the series that we've been um, in Mark uh, a series called The Journey. And we are up to uh, Mark chapter 6, and we are going to look at this morning three seemingly very disparate stories, three disparate scenes that I believe upon further investigation are going to tie together um, in significant ways. Uh, and I'm going to wait till the end to tie it all together. Uh, we're going to start out by just reading through and jumping in. And so uh, this, this is uh, where it's, what it says in, in, in verse 1 of, of Mark chapter 6. It says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him, and how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went out among the villages teaching. You know, we've caught a few glimpses into Jesus's emotional expressions throughout uh, the gospel of, of Mark. We saw that he was moved to compassion when a leper came to him and asked him for healing. And we saw that Jesus got angry and he grieved the uh, Pharisees and their hardened hearts. And in this scene that we're looking at, we are told that Jesus marveled. That, that he marveled. That word marvel, it means to be awestruck, to be utterly amazed. And, and you know, we marvel at all kinds of things. Like uh, when you look at a stunning sunset, it's like, wow, this is amazing. This is marvelous. Or when you look at the, uh, the, the, the shining stars against the midnight sky, beautiful. It's marvelous. And you might think that it'd be pretty challenging uh, to make the Messiah marvel, but here we see in this passage, Jesus is marveling over unbelief. Jesus is utterly astounded when he encounters this attitude of unbelief. 
So this is a bit of a homecoming scene. Jesus is going back home to the small town of Nazareth, the place that he grew up in as a child. And upon arrival, we find out that he's doing the same things that he's always done in every town that he's visited to up, up until this point. Um, so there's a pattern here. And, and, and we've seen it before. He steps into the synagogue. He starts teaching on the Sabbath. And, and the initial response is something we've seen before as well. It says those who were listening to his teaching were astonished. They had never heard anyone unpack the scriptures the way Jesus did. And so that sets off a series of questions from the crowd people are asking about. Their curiosity is piqued, and, and, and we've seen that before as well, haven't we, right? What Jesus what he does, whether it's, it's teaching or healing or casting out demons, whatever it is, it, it arouses this curiosity and it causes people to ask the most critical question, who is this guy? And, and, and that's the whole point to get to that place where people are asking and wrestling with this question, who is this Jesus? And, and that's what's happening here, except for the hometown crowd, the process gets short-circuited. Uh, the questions they ask actually get listed here for us. And, and it started out well enough. It, here's the first question. Where did this man get these things? And, and then what is this wisdom that was given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Those are good questions. Those are honest questions. And, and the answers to those questions are, are, are worth looking for. But then it's what happens next. This is where we get to what we haven't seen up to this point. Uh, they start filling in the blanks of everything they don't know about Jesus with just the little that they do know about him. And they, ending, they end up reaching the conclusion that this Jesus cannot be anyone special. Isn't this the carpenter, right? This Jesus is nothing more than a carpenter. Isn't he the son of Mary? We make a big deal about Mary, but in first century, in her town, she was... She was a nobody. Nobody blinked at her. Um, we know his entire family. So, yeah, they may make a big deal about this Jesus in other towns, but not us. We know better. We've got this guy figured out. You know, what, what someone does for a living, uh, who their family is, uh, where they come from, these kinds of facts, they can't ever tell the whole story about anyone. And it ends up turning into a form of like prejudice, doesn't it? Um, but after all is said and done, the hometown crowd, they go from being astonished with Jesus to being offended at him very quickly. And it's such a sad scene. Uh, it highlights the reality that that there really is no such thing as an undeniable God moment where God shows up and you cannot deny it, right? I wish that were true, but look at this. The very Son of God, he is physically present right there in front of them. He is teaching in ways they've never heard before. He's doing things they've never seen before, and yet they're going to walk away and they're going to be, nope, I don't think so. And, and that leaves Jesus utterly amazed. 
He marvels at their unbelief because they saw the same things all the other towns had seen, but they processed it through their hearts and through their minds through a filter of, of unfaithfulness or faithlessness. They, they saw the physical, but they filtered out the spiritual. They, they knew what they knew about Jesus, but there was so much more to who he was that they just would not even consider. And, you know, I, I guess the reality is, and, and we all know this, is if someone is inclined to poke holes at someone else, right, we, we know that it's going to happen. You will find some kind of way to do so. If you intend to find a reason not to believe in someone or in something, then you will. Even the perfect, sinless Son of God. They couldn't criticize anything about what Jesus did. They couldn't criticize who he was, so they criticized his family and the place he came from. And for them, that was reason enough to reject him. And, and because of that attitude of unbelief, the reality is we see that they, they, they missed out on so much. And that's the sadness of the scene. It says this, that Jesus could do no mighty works there. There must have been some mighty works that could have been done that day in Nazareth that didn't get done for the sole reason that there was this attitude of unbelief. And it kind of makes me wonder what mighty works might not be taking place in the landscape of my life or in the landscape of your life for no reason other than an attitude of unbelief residing within. There, there is a very real faith factor. Somehow it's connected to experiencing the work of God, experiencing breakthrough in our lives. Now, I can't tell you exactly the specifics of how that connection works and what precisely it looks like, but it's real. And it's, it's there. Um, you know, we all know, probably we've heard that there are those who, who will make way too much about faith. Uh, that if we don't have something we want, if our lives are not experiencing the best life right now, then the reason must be that we don't have enough faith and we are always in need of more faith. That's the answer for everything wrong. Uh, it makes me sick. Right? That's, this is why uh, I, I tell people, don't get your, your spiritual diet fed through TV televangelists. Uh, stay away. There's some good ones out there, but there's too much garbage. Um, it can get so out of line, and we need to be aware of that, right? But there's another side to it as well. We also need to be aware of swinging too far the other way, of not believing God for anything, not living with any sense of expectation about what Jesus might want to do at any given time in the landscape of our lives. That attitude may be actually more dangerous than the one that we are so more inclined, at least for myself, to avoid. So, so don't let that attitude of unbelief, don't let it get set into your heart. It's, it's, it's that attitude that reduces Jesus to something and someone less than who he really is. And especially when we read about what Jesus does in response, because it says very simply that he left. He left his hometown and he moved on. 
that he doesn't stay in these places of unbelief. He looks for those places where there's receptivity, where people are ready to welcome him and trust in him with faith and with expectation. Jesus marveled. Uh, the next scene is going to mark um, the disciples' very first step into hands-on ministry. Uh, Jesus is, is about to hand them an assignment that is guaranteed to build up this faith uh, that was so lacking in his hometown. Now, back in chapter 3, we read about when Jesus called the disciples. He called his, his 12 disciples, and he talked about two purposes. Uh, first, that they might be with him. And, and that's what we've seen in the first five chapters of Mark. Um, it's what I would call the little Bo Peep model of ministry, right? Everywhere that Jesus goes, the disciples were sure to follow. And that's what's happened up to this point. He is doing it all, and the disciples are just hanging out, taking it all in. And that's, that's, been, that's been the right thing up to this point. But, but there was a second reason that Jesus called them. It says that, he might, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. That next stage, that stage of sending is about to begin right now. Let's read about it. It says this, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So Jesus is sending out the 12 to do the same things that he had up to this point been doing himself. And, and this is a part of the discipleship process uh, of transitioning from the sidelines uh, to the front lines. And Jesus is still in the business of sending out his followers today in a very similar fashion. And there comes a point in time when every Christ follower is going to hear that call. Get in the game. You see, the goal is not to sit back and spectate. Jesus' agenda is for every one of his followers to be on mission, to take an active part in what it is that he is doing in this world. And the basic principle that we see is, is, is it's, it's, it's this, is that his kingdom gets work, gets, gets done, uh, accomplished through ordinary people who are empowered with his authority. Um, and so this is the moment. This is when it starts for them. You know, everybody has some kind of first step. And, you know, these original 12 disciples, you know, we, we think about them today. We look back on them, and they seem to us like giants of the faith. You know, it's not just Peter, right? It's St. It's Peter. He started out as a washed-up fisherman, Right? And, and St. Matthew, right, he started out as a recovering tax collector, a crook, right? And, 
And Jesus is here. He's pushing them out of the nest. He's saying, get out there. It's your time to fly. And it just points at this reality that so much of what God wants to do in, in our lives, it, it doesn't happen just when we're, we're sitting down listening to teaching or, or spectating. There are, there are things that God intends to do in your life that only happen, that only take shape when we choose to go and to do. So, so this, this is sort of like a 101 orientation guide to kingdom ministry. Uh, what Jesus says, the instructions he gives them, it's customized to their specific assignment, but there's also some basic principles that apply to all of us even today. Here's a few of them. The first would be this one, buddy up, right? Uh, don't go it alone. Jesus sends his disciples out two by two because ministry is not a solo sport. We need each other, and if you are on your own, if we are disconnected from community, then we're just not going to make a kingdom impact uh, on our world. We, we, we need to be connected. Uh, a second principle with this would be this, plug in. Um, there's this recognition that, that living on mission, just consider the grandeur of it. It is nothing less than being a part of putting the shattered pieces of this broken world, of broken lives, back together again. To restore this broken world back to God's original design. That's what Jesus is doing. That is what he's about. And the reality is, is that it is not something any of us can accomplish on our own power. But the unparalleled authority of Jesus for those of you who have been here for a while, you've, you've seen this, right? We have, seen, we have had a front row seat to the authority of Jesus on full display. His authority over demons, over sickness, over all of the powers around this world. And there's this fascinating thing that happens. He gives it to his disciples. He gives it to us. And, and we just have to, like, Stop for a moment and let that reality sink in, right? What that means is, number one, that it takes nothing less than Jesus' authority to accomplish Jesus' agenda. We can't do it in our own strength and our own power. We're more like an extension cord, right? We're an extension of what Jesus is doing, but if we're not plugged in, we're just a useless wire, Ministry is a matter of appropriating the authority that Jesus has entrusted us with. Another principle is this, keep it simple. Uh, Jesus, if you didn't notice, he tells them to pack light, right? Take only the very bare minimum. Uh, there is no room on mission for excess baggage. And I don't know if you're one of those people who, when you're packing, you pack for anything and everything. Well, what about this? I need this. What about that? I need that. Make sure, um, not when it comes to living on mission. All that stuff can get in the way, and oftentimes, sometimes, it can be a smokescreen for wanting to just control our lives, control what happens to us. And it's like he's telling his disciples this is going to be a faith journey 
And you're going to learn through this to trust more because I'm calling you to plan less. And watch what happens. Mission and ministry is an act of faith. It always keeps us in a place of desperate dependency upon him. And that's not a bad place to be. Uh, the last one is this. Uh, get ready for rejection. Right? It, it happened to Jesus. We just saw that in the previous scene. And Jesus prepares his disciples. It's going to happen to you. Know what to do and know how to respond when it does. Uh, he says, shake the dust. Shake the dust of your, off your sandals and just move on. Don't let that rejection sink in and set in to your hearts. And with that, he sends them off. You know, I remember uh, many, many years ago, I had just graduated from college. I came back home to the church in Mayapak where I grew up, and I was a business major. I had zero intentions of being in ministry. And one of the elders of that church, a guy by the name of Dave Bell, he came up to me one day and he said, hey, would you mind helping out with our teenage youth group? And my response sounded something like this. I don't know what I would do. I don't know what good I'll be. But I said, sure, I'll show up. For nothing else, I'll show up, and that's it. And, and, and that's how it started. God, God poured so much love into my heart for those kids, and he just changed the trajectory of my life and it has led to some pretty wild adventures. Uh, living on mission leads to some pretty wild adventures. Every believer is called to ministry, make no mistake. Not necessarily to vocational ministry, but there is some way that God has uniquely gifted you to take part in his redemption agenda. Now, we don't want to reduce this kingdom call um, to limit it to only serving at the local church level. It, it surely goes way, way beyond that. But it's also definitely nothing less than that as well. And so I would just challenge you, if you haven't taken that step, um, to be a part of building up the body of Christ. This church, this body needs all of us to function. Now, now this is... Uh, this is ministry. We've looked at Marvel. We've looked at ministry. Uh, there's one more scene that we're going to put together, but this passage is about to get abruptly interrupted with a very grisly account, detailed account of a murder. And this is one of those places where I'm looking at it this past week, and I'm like scratching my head and say, why did that story get inserted here? It just seems, it seems so out of place but it's an intentional insert. It's a, it's a cautionary tale about what it actually costs to be a part of God's, what God's agenda, what he's doing, and extending uh, the kingdom of God to prepare Christ followers for what price they may be called to pay. Because here's what we're going to find is that when kingdoms clash, heads roll. Um, and that's what happens next. I'm going to read this. It says this, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. 
That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is the prophet, like the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took the body and laid it in the tomb. Crazy story. Um, fascinating kind of stories you see in Scripture. But here we find out to start that King Herod is asking questions about who Jesus is. People are asking, who is this Jesus? And they're coming up with all kinds of answers. But Herod is convinced that this Jesus is John the Baptist raised back to life because he's he is a man conflicted. He is haunted by this series of unfortunate events that led to John's execution for which Herod was directly responsible. Okay, so now I'm going to start making a few connections between this account, between the disciples' assignment, and our call. The message that the disciples proclaimed when they were sent out on their assignment was that people should repent. That was, that was their message, repent. And if we go back to the beginning of Mark, at the very first page, we find out that repent was at the heart of John's message as well. He proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in chapter 1, verse 4. And guess what Jesus' message was? that he proclaimed at the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 14. It says this, After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, the idea is that with Jesus coming, the ultimate authority has arrived onto our planet. The ultimate authority, it's not you. It's not me. It's him, and he's been going on to demonstrate that. And what that means is that none of us are in charge. All of us are accountable, and that requires some kind of response on our part to adjust our lives, to adjust the way that we're living to, around, to, to align around the one who is in charge. 
That's, that's the whole idea between, behind repentance. That's what it means. And it's not a message that always goes down easy. Uh, so here's John the Baptist. He is face to face with the Roman ruler and he's confronting him with the reality that there is a higher authority that he was accountable to. He calls out the sexual sin of a Gentile king. That it's not a matter of personal choice. That it's not a matter of consenting adults. That it doesn't matter who you are or what position you hold. You're still accountable. John called it out and he paid the price. And, you know, I pray for that kind of bold prophetic voice to rise up in Jesus' followers today to call sin out instead of catering to the spirit of the age. And even in our own lives at the level of just looking at the mirror to see what's going on and call out what's not right and stop the compromising. See, this is a message, repentance is a message that will elicit one of two responses. The one is surrender, conform, kill whatever it is that's getting in the way of what God says. The alternative is a response of defiance. That chooses instead to kill the messenger and to remove all remnants of the message that we are accountable to anyone other than ourselves. Welcome to our world. This is the world we live in, and this is what's happening here. Herodias can't stand the thought of John continually questioning the validity of her being with Herod, and so she seizes the opportunity, and she takes John out. When kingdoms collide, heads roll, and the scene ends with John's disciples receiving his dead body and laying it in a tomb. What I want to tell you is there's just a little bit of foreshadowing going on here. Mark is a good storyteller here, and he's setting us up for something next. Because if we were to flip forward just a few pages, we are going to find ourselves in a very similar scene to this one. Except next time, it's not John, it's Jesus. He's been arrested. He is sitting in front of another room in authority, not Herod. This time, it's a guy by the name of Pilate. And like Herod, he was a conflicted man, and he was intrigued and curious about who this Jesus guy was. Um, he was as, as intrigued with Jesus as Herod was about John, and yet Pilate does the same thing. He hands Jesus over to be crucified. And that scene's followed up by the scene of his disciples retrieving his lifeless body from Pilate and laying their rabbi in a grave. But you see, that's where the similarities come to an end because when kingdoms clash, heads roll, but when a kingdom is conquered, the stone rolls. And that's what happened to Jesus. The kingdom of God conquered death, the ultimate enemy, and Jesus was raised back to life eternal. And what that means for you and for me is that the ultimate authority, the ultimate outcome, none of those are in doubt. All of that has been settled. Jesus won our victory, 
And he ascended back to heaven as the name that is above every other name, the name upon which ultimately every knee will bow. And the day is coming when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day is not today, but we are waiting that day. And as we do so, we do it with the recognition, the very sober recognition that what happened to John, that what happened to Jesus, it may very well happen to you and to me, to Christ followers around the world as well. Amazing adventures await as we set out to be on a mission with Jesus. There are going to be stories of healing told. Stories of freedom, stories of release, stories of miracles that are waiting to be told. But not everyone is going to respond. Not everyone is going to respond positively. Some may be indifferent, and you just walk away and shake the dust. Others may respond not with indifference, but with outright indignation aimed directly at you as a representative of the one who is the ultimate authority. And so to tie all of this together, I would say this, is that there is a message, a beautiful message that Jesus has come, that he is the name above all names. He is the ultimate authority, and there is this opportunity to repent, to align our lives around who he is, But here's the reality that we cannot preach repentance until we're ready for rejection. And I have an inkling that one of the reasons that uh, Jesus' people have been so fearful of preaching bold, radical repentance is because we hate rejection so much. We're called to love. We are called to walk alongside people. We are called to demonstrate heavy doses of of the love of God to everyone and anyone at all. But there is a popular myth that gets carried around Christian circles. It's that we can somehow magically almost love people into coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Love people into repentance. I wish that were true. But the moment we open up our mouths and talk about change, the moment we talk about God setting boundaries in areas like what John the Baptist did, sexuality, things are going to get intense. And so it's, it's this reality of rejection. That's the thread that, that ties all of these disparate scenes together. Jesus experienced it in his hometown. He prepared the disciples to expect it. And John here is the ultimate example of, of what it looks like and what it can lead to. And, and, and the question is, are we okay with that? Are we okay with that discipleship reality that people may reject me because of Jesus and who he is. I got to tell you, for me, it took me a long, long time to get there. I hate rejection. Um, Man, 
not everyone's going to like you. Someone said, if you want everyone to like you, then go sell ice cream, right? Uh, We never want to be callously offensive in ways that are not appropriate. But we dare not shy away from the reality that what we put before people has the opportunity to have them turn away and reject it, and in so doing, reject us. Jesus embraced that reality, and his rejection paved the way for for our acceptance. This This is what led to our salvation, his death on a cross. What things does that lead to in our lives as we just plainly, boldly, clearly call the people in our lives to this message of who Jesus is and invite them to align their lives around that. Let's pray together. Lord, 